Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. And this season I am covering cases from Edinburgh, Scotland. Tonight is no different. I have a very excellent case for you on this lovely Christmas Eve Eve for those who celebrate. I am kind of in the Christmas spirit. I've been listening to a lot of Christmas music have baked cookies, watched some Christmas movies, went to the holiday market in New York City, saw the tree. But I'm used to life-threatening weather, meaning insanely cold, snow, blizzard. There's apparently an Arctic blast coming to Chicago, where I'm from, so... I'm glad to be away from that, though it does really put you in the holiday spirit when you're bombarded with snow and ice and frigid air. But I'm not complaining because I've been thrilled to have weather in the 50s in December. It's insane. I will take every second of it. But I've already wrapped a couple of gifts. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. This case is not a holiday-based case. But there's some magic that goes into it. Maybe not Christmas magic, but some magic. Because tonight we will be talking about the great Lafayette. He was, I would say, I, I think he went by as an illusionist. I will be referring to him as a magician, illusionist, whatever. But... It puts me in the mindset of the movie, The Illusionist, The Prestige, Now You See Me, all these fun little magic movies, mystery, murder, magic, etc. But we will be focusing on the life and death of the great Lafayette. Don't worry if you haven't heard of him. I hadn't either. And... I'm, I'd say I'm decently up to date on my magicians. Don't quote me. Don't ask me who and what they're known for. But I like to spend my time watching magic tricks. Magic videos. Especially how they're done. I love a good reveal. Even though you're not supposed to. I, I love it. So the Great Lafayette. We're starting at... The Theater in Edinburgh, now known as Edinburgh Festival Theater. It is the longest continuous theater site in Edinburgh. It was built in 1830, originally as Dunedin Hall. It was remained a theater to this day, holding names such as Royal Amphitheater, Alphabra Music Hall, The Queen's Theater, Newsome Circus, Empire Palace Theater, and now 
Edinburgh Festival Theatre. The Empire Palace was the most lavish, with decor including elephants, with Nubian riders, nymphs and cherubs, and it seated 3,000 people on four levels. And the Empire Palace is where our story takes place this evening. So we're taking it back to May 9th, 1911, when the Great Lafayette was performing to a sold-out crowd, 3,000 people, and it wasn't just a one-night sold-out performance. He was at this theater for four months, and each performance was sold out. That's how famous he was in 1911. He was performing his famous lion-to-lady trick, which was a 25-minute trick to end his entire show, something that most uh, magicians weren't doing at the time, like this huge spectacle, tons of extras, animals, etc. Used big set pieces and special effects, when suddenly, in the middle of his lying to lady trick, at the very end of the performance, a curtain caught on fire. And I've talked about this in a previous episode, season one, episode one, the Iroquois or Iroquois Theater in Chicago. They also got a curtain caught on fire from a light that malfunctioned. But same thing happened here. The curtain caught on fire. But because there's so many special effects going on, and it's a magic trick and a magic show, the audience thought it was part of the show. And even the great Lafayette didn't notice right away, and he continued his performance or his trick. Eventually, the audience realized it wasn't part of the trick when the fire spread from one side of the stage to the other, and a piece of curtain floated down onto the stage in front of the performance. Now we'll get back to that, but just so you know, the great Lafayette, he was born in Munich in 1871 as Siegmund Neuberger. He immigrated to the USA in 1890 at 19 years old and began performing in vaudeville. Very popular at the time. Vaudeville began in France, but it quickly gained popularity in the United States and Canada. And French vaudeville is different from what American, like North America knows as vaudeville acts. For vaudeville in the United States and Canada, it was a bunch of separate unrelated acts that would be put together and advertised as one show. So you could have musicians, you could have dancers, you could have stand-up comedians, trained animals, magicians, acrobats, clowns, plays, minstrels, Pretty much, if you had a talent, you could perform it live at a vaudeville gig. And that golden age, not a vaudeville, but the golden age of magic was 1880s through 1930s. There were more than 4,000 magicians around the world at this time. Obviously, not all great, but some popular music uh, magicians... I keep wanting to say musicians because I'm a musician. That's what I say more often than anything. Magicians, some popular magicians, illusionists, were Howard 
Thurston. And he was known for the largest traveling music vaudeville show. He had eight train cars with props, actors, animals, etc. And traveled all, all over the place. Eight train cars. Which honestly just makes me think of Rugrats, the Rugrats movie. When that train crashes and a bunch of monkeys are released into the jungle. Because that song still slaps. Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah. Walla walla bing bang. Ooh ee ooh ah ah ting ting walla walla bing bang. That song gets stuck in my head all the time. Same with mbop. Mbop. Bop bop. Both songs, if you hear me sing them, sing along. Another popular illusionist was Long Tech Sam. He was known as having the greatest act in all of vaudeville. Whether that's true or not. It's subjective, but that's what he was advertised as. Richard Valentine Pitchford. He popularized wearing white gloves while doing magic. White gloves are is popular because you focus on those white gloves, so you're kind of missing out on other things that might be happening behind the magician or within the magician's clothing, you're distracted by the white gloves. Another one was Ching Ling Fu. He was the first great Chinese magician, and he created the Fu Can. The Fu Can trick was when you pour water in a large jug or some kind of vehicle to hold water, then apparently pour water from the can into a cone made of newspaper or any kind of paper. And then you open the newspaper and the water is gone. That popular chick, that was created by, or maybe not created, but made popular by Ching Ling Fu. Now, there's another man who went by Chung Ling Su, who was known for the bullet catch trick where you shoot and skip ahead if you don't want me to ruin some of these tricks, but someone would stand across from the magician, Chung Ling Su, and would fire a blank at the magician and the audience think it's a real bullet because suddenly the magician catches the bullet in his teeth or in his hand and he reveals the bullet, so he caught a speeding bullet. Wild. But Chung Ling Su was a racist impersonator, and I will talk about him later, but he's annoying as fuck. Anyway, Thomas Nelson Downs was another one, known as the King of Coins. Very popular with coin tricks. Emil Jaro, known for Bill in Lemon. So, you know, a dollar bill stuck in some kind of fruit, usually a lemon. Horace Golden, known for making the Sawing Woman in Half Trick popular, a classic. Harry Keller, he was incredibly well known for everything, Harry Keller. And he's viewed as the predecessor of Harry Houdini, who is probably the most well-known magician of all time. And there were more, those are just... Some extremely popular illusionists, 
in the golden age of magic and also around the same time as the Great Lafayette. The Great Lafayette was one of those greats at the time and was in fact the most well-paid magician at the end of his career. He was making $44,000 a year by 1910 and was booked 10 years out. 10 years. That's insane. So if, God forbid, these theaters that are trying to book this guy, they got to think 10 years ahead. I know theaters that sell to different people after owning the theater for two years. I can't imagine trying to create a program 10 years in advance. That's insane. But $44,000 in 1910 is almost $4 million today. And he would be making that for 10 years. That's insane. I mean, good for him. Like, as a magician, where most magicians were broke, good for him. But... When Lafayette was just starting out, he looked to Chingling's Fu for inspiration. Lafayette's first, he first developed a bone arrow act that he presented in London after making a name for himself in the Western United States. And even though people enjoyed the bone arrow trick, it didn't make him a household name quite yet. Bone arrow trick meaning. Like, if you've seen America's Got Talent, a lot of them will do this where they put an apple on someone's head or they have an assistant hold something and you shoot a bow or you shoot an arrow from a bow and it hits that object. Similar to the catching the bullet situation, but it's with the bow and arrow. That's what the Great Lafayette was originally known for was his bow and arrow act. But again, like I was saying, it didn't make him a household name yet. So... He moved back to the United States after performing in London and started preparing more dramatic performances, including quick changes, sharpshooting, impersonations. Because you have to remember, like vaudeville, you couldn't just do one thing. You're competing with all these other variety acts. So a lot of people were several different types of performers. You would have a clown, but they would also be a stand-up comedian, and they'd also do a magic trick. Or you would have a singing acrobat. You get the idea. But you do several things. And so I think Great Lafayette wanted to, or Lafayette at this point, wanted to just add more to his repertoire so he'd become, so he'd gain more of a following. And because of this, he did become famous for his quality of staging and set pieces and the performances overall, and not just the magic tricks, but the overall performance. He performed for the coronation of Edward VII and did quick changes. Again, I I was saying earlier, he was most known for the lion's bride or lion to lady trick, where he needed a lion, a horse, and a dog. So, which, I mean, costs a lot of money, but it's fun to see, or at least back then, people weren't used to seeing live animals on stage and not used to seeing live animals in a magic trick on stage. So he made a lot of money, but he also spent a lot of money. The dog he used his was named Beauty. Beauty the dog. 
apparently the story goes Lafayette and Houdini were both friends. That's true. They were both friends. But they played a show in Nashville at the Nashville Opera together. And after their magic shows, the chief of police gave Houdini a dog for doing a great job, I guess. You just hand out dogs like that. Interesting gift, but also from the chief of police. Odd, but okay. Remember, Houdini is a huge name already at this point. But Houdini was a huge dog fan. And so he gave the dog to Lafayette. And the dog was a mixed breed, though Lafayette made up a breed. So anytime people asked what kind of breed Beauty was, Lafayette would say she was a royal Gleckhounds, which is not a real breed, but pop off. And he named the dog Beauty because she was his soulmate. He bathed her twice a day in a gold bathtub. She ate dinner at the table with guests on fine china, like full-on five-course meals with everyone. When they traveled, they each had their own hotel suites. Beauty had a diamond-encrusted bracelet and collar that she always wore. And there was a plaque on Lafayette's house that said, The more I see of men, the more I love my dog. And look, I get it. I grew up with dogs. I love dogs. If I'm getting a pet, it's going to be a dog. But this is a little, it's a little ridiculous, in my opinion. If I'm not spending money to get myself a diamond-encrusted bracelet, then why am I doing it for my dog? Beauty, the dog, unfortunately died May 2nd, 1911. She died of apoplexy, which is unconsciousness resulting from cerebral hemorrhage or a stroke bleeding into an organ, lost a blood flow to an organ. It's sad. She just had some health issues. And some people believe it's because of the way she was fed and treated. But she was embalmed, and she was buried in a glass-topped casket. And the funeral was May 10th, 1911. May 9th? 1911, if you remember, was the theater fire at Edinburgh's Festival Theater, or at this point, it was called Empire Palace. Again, it was a packed show, so there were 3,000 patrons, and all 3,000 patrons made it out alive of the fire. And in fact, someone saw the Great Lafayette escape the fire as well. However, They saw the Great Lafayette run back into the theater to rescue his animals, specifically his horse and lion, and probably did it because his soulmate dog just passed away, and he was like, I can't lose another animal. That'd be devastating. And even though all the guests survived the fire, 11 people did not make it out alive, all of who were part of the show. Lafayette was secretive about his performances, which most magicians are, 
but the Great Lafayette specifically was known for locking all of the doors that led out of the theater uh, in the backside so people couldn't sneak in or look at the props or look at the staging or see how the trick is done. And the crew... So the crew during the fire was trapped behind the stage with the fire on stage and couldn't either get out where the audience was through the house and then all the doors leading out back were locked. So they were trapped with the animals. The only reason the audience was able to get out was because the orchestra, while the flames are going on the curtain, began to play the national anthem, which at the time was to signify danger. So whenever you were in like a public setting and suddenly the national anthem is being played, you knew something bad was about to happen. So yes, the audience realized that the flames were not part of the show when they got larger and the curtain started to fall on stage. But also the orchestra helped out and was like, you all need to get the fuck out of here. The fire was so bad that the theater burned down. And one of the first bodies found was the Great Lafayette. The city of Edinburgh put together a huge funeral procession at the behest of Harry Houdini. During those days of planning between the fire and Lafayette's burial, the rescue and recovery crew found the bodies of the crew and even the body of the lion, which is so sad. There's a silent short film of the charred theater that they pan over and you can see the burned body of the lion. It's really tragic, honestly. But you can find that online anywhere. Theater fires are really sad because they absolutely could be prevented. And even if the theater burned down, people didn't need to die. I go more into safety precautions in the uh, season one, episode one, the Chicago Iroquois Theater with Ty. But we don't need standing room. We need to make sure doors are never locked. They swing the correct way, exit signs in the correct spot. I would love to be able to sit in a theater and not have glowing red exit signs anywhere, but it's important for safety. So we got to do it. Or let's get back into having theater outside. That I would love that as well. Like Millennium Park in Chicago, stunning outside I don't know if you call it an amphitheater or a theater, but gorgeous. And I love seeing shows there on the lawn. Not in this weather. Give it end of May. Mm, I'd even wait till June, maybe. But we need more of that. But seeing the lion chart, it's really sad. Any Like seeing any recovery footage of dead people, animals, etc. is tragic. But two to three days after the fire, they were finally able to clear most of the rubble. 
which meant they were able to access the basement under the theater. Obviously, everything collapsed on top of the basement door or like on the hole to the basement, but they were finally able to get down there. And when they checked the basement of the theater, they found one more body. And it was the body of the great Lafayette. Now I'm going to take a quick break and be right back. Okay, I am back, and I know you're probably confused. I did say the first body they found was the Great Lafayette, and I also said the last body they found was the Great Lafayette. You're like, Blake, what the fuck is going on here? And I will tell you. So the Lion's Bride, or the Lion into Lady trick, was the Great Lafayette's famed finale as I mentioned earlier, and it was set in Africa. So you got tapestries, beautiful cushions, tents all over the stage, a lion in a cage with fire eaters. There were jugglers, contortionists performing. When I mean the great Lafayette went all out, he went all out on production. It was a spectacle. And in the last, uh, in the last trick, a woman slowly makes her way into the lion's den, right? She's probably like belly dancing or doing scarf performances. She slowly makes her way across the stage into the lion's den. And the lion roars. And before he pounces, the skin is pulled away, revealing the great Lafayette behind the lion's mane. Another version of this has the woman being lowered into the lion's den but before the lion attacks is transformed into the great Lafayette. And another version after that has the great Lafayette taking the head off the lion as he pounces, revealing it was him all along. So obviously very dif- various dif- uh, variations to this trick, but all essentially the same. The lion is real, but somehow the head comes off and it's the great Lafayette. I don't know how he did it. I would love to see it done live. I've seen other lion tricks, you know, like you put the woman or the apprentice in an empty cage and then you pull the curtain closed. And then when you pull the curtain back, the assistant's gone and there's a lion walking around in the cage. And you're like, oh my God, they transformed. And again, skip 30 seconds if you don't want to hear how that's done. But essentially the assistant goes into the cage and there's a false back to the cage that looks like it's real but it's false and when the curtains close the assistant crawls into a trap door at the bottom of the cage and like con- uh contortionist what is, how do i pronounce that contortionist style squeezes their ass underneath the cage and then that false back falls down to create the floor, and so the lion then has free reign of the cage, whereas before 
It was standing in a small little corner. Anyway, that's another one I've seen done. I don't know how Lafayette did his trick and convinced people it was real, but hey, people were loving it, living it up. Lafayette was known, one of his main tricks He was known for swapping places and suddenly appearing in the audience, even though he was on stage a blink of an eye ago. And of course, he did this with a body double. So when the rescue team found the second Lafayette, they were incredibly confused. They had just pulled Lafayette out of the rubble a couple days ago and had sent the body to Glasgow to be cremated for the funeral. So the question became, was the first man the real Lafayette or was the second body the great Lafayette? They weren't entirely sure for a little bit, but when they did look closer, they realized that the second body still had the gold jewelry, whilst the first didn't have any jewelry. Remember, the great Lafayette made a lot of money. He spent a lot of money. So when they found the first Great Lafayette, who didn't have any jewelry on, they just assumed that robbers had snuck in and stole the jewelry before rescue teams could get there, which was common back then. I talk about it again in episode season one, episode one. People were savage. When you had people dead in an alleyway or something, people would just rob them right then and there and run away. So they just thought, they didn't question it really, they just thought that's what happened especially because they had no idea Lafayette's band leader was also his body double. The funeral was held on May 14th, 1911. For the real Lafayette, at this point, they'd finally figured out that there were two, there was a body double. They figured out who was who. A huge brass band led the procession. And again, Harry Houdini is the one who put all this together. He's like, the great Lafayette was my best friend. I got to give him a big funeral procession and send off. So brass band led the procession. Behind them was Lafayette's car, which was a silver Mercedes, where his second dog, a Dalmatian named Mabel, was riding inside. The silver Mercedes in 1911 was followed by a horse-drawn hearse headed for Pierschall Cemetery. And thousands of people attended the procession. Thousands. And they buried Lafayette with his dog, Beauty. Because remember, she only died a couple, I think like three days before the great Lafayette died. Unfortunately, The only name I could find for his body double was Richards. I don't know where his body double is buried today. I don't know what happened to him. I couldn't find the names of the other nine men who passed away that evening in the theater fire. But there were 11 people who passed away. One being the Great Lafayette. Which, it's weird because his name has kind of been forgotten over the years. Other Other magicians have stayed the test of time like Harry Houdini, but for some reason, the Great Lafayette hasn't had that same lore. Though maybe he would have if he didn't die 
at such a young age. But I am just going to say Lafayette never married. And I have a feeling he was gay. He had a plaque inside his house that said, you may drink my wine, you may eat my food, you may command my servants, but you must respect my dog. And his dog was named Beauty. Beauty. I'm just saying it's a theory. I'm going to stick by it. I have no proof. doesn't really matter if he was or not, but I'm not going to say Houdini was gay either, but he also never had children. And there is some kind of rumor historians, some historians believe that Houdini's wife was intersex. I don't need to get into that, but I would not be surprised if Lafayette and Houdini had a thing as best friends performing together on the road for vaudeville. They seemed very close. Extremely close. Anyway, I bring up Houdini because he started his career in fake seances and moved eventually moved to what he is most known for now, his escape acts. But when he passed away, Halloween seances became extremely common because Houdini died on October 31st, 1926. So a lot of people on Halloween try to contact Harry Houdini through seances. And I'm not going to get into Harry Houdini Maybe that'll be another episode in a future season since he was kind of murdered. But all of this is to say that even though no one could reach Houdini in a seance, they were able to reach the Great Lafayette by seance. I still think they're boyfriends. April 28th, 1932, an article in the Psychic News reported that magician Will Goldston saw and heard the Great Lafayette during a seance with famed Scottish medium Helen Duncan. Now, Will Goldston, or Goldstone, he was a magician from Liverpool. He was a lifelong friend of Houdini, wrote once a week, like Houdini and Will wrote once a week to each other for 20 years. And I get it. They didn't have social media. And so they had to keep track of each other's lives. But that's a lot. One letter a week for 20 years. It's a long. I don't know how long these letters were, but good for them. Consistent. Will founded London-based Magicians Club and a publishing company which is the publishing company that published Houdini's books. He believed in spiritualism, which was odd since Houdini was so against it. And I think Houdini was so against it because he used to do seances as a magic trick. So he stated that most seances that you go to are fraudulent. So I think it's interesting. But... Helen Duncan, the famed medium, Scottish medium, she was super famous for regurgitating ectoplasm. Plenty of photos online if you want to look her up. And again, I'll post those on social media so you can see. But 
She was eventually found to be faking everything, as Houdini predicted. And in 1933, she was arrested and charged for fraudulent mediumship in Edinburgh. That didn't stop her. She continued to perform seances. Even though she was known as a fraud, she was arrested for witchcraft in 1944, which still didn't stop her from performing seances and making money. But I think it's funny that she is known to be a fraud, or at least in the law's eyes, she's fraudulent. And Houdini doesn't believe that she's real and is good friends with Will. But Will is still like, no, I saw the great Lafayette as a ghost. I heard him. Which is hard to believe that Will believed he actually saw Lafayette. But even though many don't believe that seances were real, people have claimed to see the ghost of Lafayette in the theater itself. Staffing guests have claimed to see the magician walking the halls of the theater and hearing animals make noises through the night. And yes, specifically a lion's roar. You'll feel cold spots appear and disappear within minutes. Doors open and close by themselves. And then look, a lion's roar is loud You cannot mistake it for anything else. It would be odd to hear it in a space that you're not ready or expecting to hear it. Like, my brother's a zoologist. I'm at the zoo a lot. I've heard a lion roar during the day, during the night, but I know a lion's there. If I'm in a theater late at night that no one else is in as a staffed member, and I'm hearing a lion roar, I don't know if I would think it's a lion, but... I don't know what other animals or things that sound like a lion's roar. So who knows? I am inclined to believe that this place is haunted as fuck because I'm sure other things have gone on besides this great theater fire, but 11 people died there and two animals. So I would not be surprised. The Great Lafayette is definitely not the only ghost there. If you're working a show and and you're up on the catwalks above the stage, you may see a limping figure walking about above the stage. No one knows who it is, but they remember the distinct scraping of wood, making people think it's a peg-legged ghost from the days sailors worked the theater since they knew how to operate ropes and knots very well which I think is a fun little fact that I never really thought about before theaters today still use ropes for scenery and for flying not much anymore but I still see them here and there but back then it is all ropes and knots and if you do not tie that knot correctly or wrap that rope up correctly it is a safety hazard That burn-in curtain is the last thing on your mind. You're worried about the stage piece swinging above your head that's about to fall any second. Or that light that's not screwed on correctly and is going to fall on top of you. So it makes sense 
hiring sailors and people in the Navy to work the stage as stagehands when they retire or when they're injured or when they're on leave to make some money makes perfect sense. I'd feel safer having them there, but a pegged, a pegged legged ghost. I don't know if I want to hear that. Maybe. Okay. So peg leg, or maybe he has a cane, something that, you know, why are villains always pictured with a cane or something villainous like that? Like a weapon, I guess, but it's creepy, especially in the catwalks up, up top when you're the only person up there walking back and forth. You should not be hearing strange things up there. You could fall off any second. Staff, technicians, cleaning crew, etc. They have all seen a young girl in a yellow dress playing between the seats of the theater in the house. This young girl likes to play with people's hair and softly blow on the back of people's necks. I don't know if this is like during performances or if it's just at night or more frequently at night or only when there's a couple people in the theater, but blowing on the back of your neck, my mom would get shivers. She shakes all down her body. She'd get cold immediately. She couldn't handle that. Though she has had her hair played with by a ghost before. I don't like that. I know it's supposed to be like sweet almost or innocent. Because when a non-dead person plays with your hair or blows in your neck, it's kind of it's kind of sweet, kind of nice. It's supposed to be endearing. But when you can't see that person, no thanks. No ma'am, not for me. If you do want to check out the Festival Theater, it is currently playing the Ballet Snow Queen. Perfect for winter. I believe it's on in February and then goes into March. So it's still playing shows. You can go check it out. Maybe they have a ghost tour. I'm not sure. They are doing a dance, though. Uh, they're putting up a dance about the Peaky Blinders, which could be fun. So if you're in if you're in Edinburgh, wanna see some Peaky Blinder. I don't wanna say ballet, it just I think it just says dance. So maybe it's modern dance. This sounds fun. I would love to go check it out. I've been in plenty of theaters that are haunted. I felt plenty of things in theaters that you shouldn't feel like being watched when no one's there. Like in a theater, you're supposed to feel, you're supposed to want to be watched and feel like you're being watched because otherwise it's annoying. You know, when guests aren't watching you perform or they're distracted by a phone or other food options or whatever, now that they're passing out food at fucking Broadway shows. I don't want to hear you chomping on popcorn while I'm trying to hear someone sing, but I do not want to have the feeling of being watched while I'm in a rehearsal. Or going over lines to make sure they're memorized on stage. I went to school at Roosevelt University. And they own the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. And 
being in that huge ass theater at night creepy creepy i'm pretty sure i saw someone sitting in the back of the theater in the pitch black and then when i blinked they were gone so look plenty of theaters most of them are haunted because most of them are super old but go check out this one see if you see the great lafayette wander in the basement or on stage listen for that peg leg or cane make sure you if someone's playing with their hair make sure it's not a real person because that's some personal space that they do not need to be invading but let me know Email me at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Any and all paranormal experiences, I'll read them here on the podcast. Could be anything from stumbling upon an ancient burial, burial ground while hiking to an invisible dragon living in the woods. Anything you got. Or you can DM me those stories on Instagram or Twitter. But thank you all for joining me this week. I seriously love and appreciate all of you. Stop by the socials for photos related to this episode. Upcoming news, guest info. You can follow Haunted Hometowns on Instagram. Or you can follow my personal account, B. Lambert Hack. You can find links from there. Happy holidays. I hope you all have a lovely winter. I will be back next week. You better get ready for some crazy stories this season. Because Edinburgh has plenty And again, I'll see you next Friday because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar or Twitter or anywhere Queer Popstar. Pepe Munoz is the fantastic artist. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e. That's Pepe Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. And I got my information from Wiki wikipedia capital theaters heretic magazine the scotsman historic uk and magicpedia